Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the New Testament. After the Gospels, Acts, Romans, we also get through the, some of the epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. After 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we have 1 and 2 Timothy. These are called the pastoral epistles, this along with Titus. So we're going to look at a couple of verses in 2 Timothy. Um, we will flip to Colossians later on, but we're not going to read that now. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let's stand as we take heed and give attention to God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. These are the words of God. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Our Father in God, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than purest honey. As we turn to your scripture, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace so that the good news of your love and mercy would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but respond with wonder, faith, and trust for the sake of Christ in his name, and amen. You can be seated. Tonight, while we continue our Life Together series, I want to spend some time considering the topic of change, uh, specifically personal change in the context of maturity, uh, habits, and spiritual growth. And when I say spiritual growth, I'm speaking of, of course, growth in the Holy Spirit, the alignment of our hearts with the will of God, the development of of righteous character, self-control, and integrity, Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, of course, and so on. Growth in the Holy Spirit means walking in the Spirit, which means that all of our faculties are synced up with the Spirit who presses our souls each and every day to look more and more like Christ. That is one of the main uh, workings of the Holy Spirit in you each and every day is to press on you the image of Christ, to restore that image within you. In principle, it is restored through the process of regeneration, uh, the act in that moment of regeneration. But each day we need to align ourselves and our hearts with that image that Christ has given to us. The Holy Spirit gives us new life and he then helps us walk in new life. The Spirit does not contravene the purposes of the Father or the redemption of the Son. He brings us to those purposes and having applied that redemption takes up dwelling within us. If it isn't obvious thus far, the aim of this series has been the application of sanctification within the context of of a community. What we think, what we say, what we do aren't isolated events. I think that's one of the lies of the devil. What we think, what we say, what we do, they're not isolated events. Uh, What we think, say, and do affects others, Uh, whether that's a parent-child relationship, spouse relationship, Uh, friends, family, church, whatever, Um, what we think, what we say, what we do does in fact affect other people. And we may try to convince ourselves that those small, respectable sins are isolated and sequestered to our hearts. However, the reality is over time, it can do damage to a church, a family, or or a group. Uh, Consider the problem of bitterness um, and letting that fester and grow and you fan the flames through other types of of gossip or slander or whatever 
Um, instead of praying for people, you just take it upon yourself to mull over it, and bitterness eventually has its physical effects in your life as well. So, consequently, as a result of all of that, we need to know how to change. How to change. How to terminate sinful addictions. Um, how to change bad habits. And certainly how to repent of sin altogether. And the more that we defer sanctification, the more that we push it off, push it to the side, uh, the worse it gets. The worse it gets for you as an individual, the worse it gets for your marriage, your family, your church, and ultimately it trickles down to the nation itself. So the more we defer sanctification, the worse it gets. Now think about your life for a moment. Do you need to change? Think about your life. No, no one tonight should be thinking about others. <laughs> Think about you. Think about your life. Do you need to change? Now, the answer should always be yes, right? Because we're always scurrying about, we, wavering. Sometimes, sometimes we're wavering on things. Sometimes we're resolute, and we really got our act together over here, but we don't always have it over, over here. So uh, the answer is yes. Do I need to change? I mean, that's the first process is knowing and accepting the fact that you're actually not God's gift to humankind. <laughs> Jesus is. Not me, not you, not any of us. Um, you have to accept that fact, accept that reality, and accept the fact that you do need to change. There is something about you that should, should need to change. None, none of us is perfect. All of us have indwelling sin to mortify. All of us have folly to chase away with godly wisdom. It's a blanketed thing. But what do you need to change? So you've dealt with the fact that you do need to change, but what do you need to change? Perhaps, as we talked about last week, you're prone to people-pleasing, um, always obsessing with others and fearing them more than God. Or maybe, uh, maybe you are given over to gossip when you get in a certain circumstance with a certain someone, and, it's, and you perhaps feel guilty about it later, but you struggle to deal with it. It could be the case that you don't know how to handle um, conflict biblically, which we're going to address in a couple of weeks. And so there's a trail of destruction in your relationships. Uh, think family, you know, and, and strain in that regard. Um, maybe you struggle with negative thoughts about yourself. Maybe you do. Maybe you struggle with negative thoughts about yourself. Maybe it's about others. Um, you know, maybe you are um, lazy, generally unmotivated in your spiritual life, and thus your life is disorderly. Um, maybe you are stubborn. Maybe you are self-absorbed. Um, you don't want to serve others, or maybe you don't even think to serve others because you're only concerned about you and what you can say or what you can do next, and you really don't, not a good listener. Maybe that's the case. But whatever the case is, all of us have change projects. All of us in this room have change projects. Children, you, if, if the nothing comes to mind now, ask your parents. <laughs> They'll let you know. Um, all of us do. And kids, for you, you're going to have to learn how to do this. And it's good for you to learn how to do this now because for many of us, we haven't even figured it out as adults. So learn how to do this now. So all of us have change projects. All of us, all of us are called to arrange and align our wills to Christ in all things. So as we talked about as we talk about this tonight, be thinking about what you'd like to change in your life, not what you'd love to change about everybody else because you're the only one that has it together. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's look at our verses here. 
All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped. By the way, women, you're included in this, of course, but it is a masculine uh, in the Greek, but the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Very well-known passage. When you go to defend the authority of Scripture, this is a great place to go. But right before this, Paul warned Timothy that the enemies of the gospel are selfish, they are reckless, they are selfish, reckless imposters who go from bad to worse. And when opposition to the mission of the gospel increases, and it did for Timothy, certainly, the Scripture, as a result, must be a bulwark against said opposition. Indeed, Scripture is a bulwark. The uh, church father Gregory said Scripture is the heart and soul of God. Um, Augustine called it a fortress against errors. Great, great imagery. And the word there, God breathed, because it is theopneustos in, in, in Greek, most scholars think he just made that word up, by the way, um, putting together pneustos with theos, God inspired or God breathed is probably the best, most literal way to um, translate that. But because it's God breathed, it is revelation from God. God has revealed himself through this this uh, vehicle. The Bible is truth because it is the Word of God. It has divine weight because of its origin, where it comes from, what it claims. And this is simply the doctrine of inspiration. The Bible teaches us about God. It teaches us about man, right? It teaches us about ourselves uh, and who we are as human beings made in the image of God. It teaches us about Christ and his redemptive work. It teaches us about the cosmos, about the world we live in. And the Bible always, and this is what we forget, but it teaches us about all those things, but it also teaches us about itself. The Bible teaches us about the Bible. Um, Calvin, for example, he rightfully argued that the authority of the Scriptures does not rest on the testimony of the church, which is the Roman Catholic position, but on, instead of that, it, it rests on Scripture's self attestation. Uh, it's self-attesting in that regard, but it's also Christ's uh, view of Scripture, too. Christ gives us witness, shall we say, gives us testimony about the Word of God itself. Now, hence, Paul says the Scripture is something important. It is profitable for four main reasons, and these are, in my view, I think Paul, he puts them in a particular order for a particular reason. So we need to understand what he's saying. We're going to expound on that momentarily. First, the Bible is is profitable or beneficial or advantageous for doctrine or more specifically, teaching. So that's the first thing on your list if you have the handout, um, teaching. We're going to come to this in a minute, but the first thing is teaching. The Bible is beneficial to you for teaching. Second, the Bible is beneficial for reproof or, since we don't usually use that word, it means conviction. Third, the Bible is an advantage to each of us for correction. And that word literally means to straighten that which is crooked or to set it up that which has fallen down. Fourth, and finally, the Bible is profitable for training in righteousness. What do those four components add up to? Well, it adds up to the equipping of the man of God for every good work. So the Bible gives you the tools to make sure that you are a good soldier to switch metaphors. Gives you the the, the armor you need, it gives you the ammunition you need to be a good soldier. 
Um, it gives you the teaching that you need to proclaim the gospel to the world. It gives you what you need. Now, flip to uh, Colossians. So you're going to go back toward the uh, beginning of your Bible, just a couple of books. Colossians chapter 3. And I want to look specifically at verses 12 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. We're in Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He's going to come back to these. Uh, he, he does in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 13, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. <laughs> Don't sing with uh, um, curmudgeonness. I don't know if that's a word, but I just invented it. In your hearts. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Speaking of change, Paul tells us here and elsewhere, he says to put on certain things, this language of put on, um, certain things like it's clothing to wear, it's apparel. So put on X, Y, and Z. The old garments of wrath, uh, malice, sexual immorality, impurity, and so forth, they are to be laid aside. Uh, you're, you go outside and, and you're mowing the lawn, doing the weed trimming, all of that fun stuff, and it's, well, it's been this summer in Virginia, blazing hot, and uh, you have sweated maybe just an ounce or two, or 16 gallons, <laughs> and uh, you remove that disgusting attire. That is the filth. He says to, to take that off, take off all of those uh, things. They are to be laid aside, they are to be cast aside, they are to be considered dead and buried. When you think about your Christian life, the old you is to be considered dead and buried because in principle it is dead and buried. It's been buried with Christ and he buried those sins in there so far deep that they're gone. So you need to consider those things. When you have a sin that crops up in your life, when you have uh, something that you know, rears its ugly head, you have to consider that dead. Don't resurrect that. Consider it dead. So lay it aside. And in Basically, the analogy here is when we participate in those things as Christians, we are trying to revive the old man. We're trying to resuscitate the old man. Uh, we're trying to put on the disheveled, tawdry clothes that we once wore, that once marked our lives. And we're trying to please someone other than Christ. So that's the downfall of picking up those old things and putting them on. We're told to put, instead, we're to put on compassion. So don't reach for the bitterness, don't reach for the gossip, don't reach for the slander, don't re reach for the lust, don't reach for the covetousness, don't reach for those things. Reach instead, he says, and put on compassion, put on kindness, put on humility, 
um, gentleness and patience. And frankly, if you're in the middle of a problem, whatever that is, you stay in your wardrobe and you wrestle it out. That's prayer. Prayer is you in the armoire rifling through what you should be putting on because you want to put on the old thing. We all know what an armoire is, right? Did I? Yeah. <laughs> Do we even use those anymore? The closet. The closet. That's prayer. You're trying to put off the old, put on the new. Don't pick up the dirty laundry and try to wear that. That's been dead and buried. So Paul says not to put those things on. Put on gentleness. Put on patience. We're trying to bear with one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to put on love. And two things, he says, mark our inward lives. One, look at verse um, 16, 15 and 16. In verse 15, the peace of Christ must rule our hearts. And by the way, thankfulness is noted as um, being key in this process there. The peace of Christ rule your hearts. If, you don't, if you're unstable, unsure, whatever the case, you don't have the peace of Christ ruling your hearts because you've either forgotten what he's given you or you're just refusing to accept it. But peace of Christ must rule your hearts. But number two, the word of Christ must dwell in us richly. That is in verse 16. So wisdom must teach and admonish us and each other. Um, and he brings up songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Basically, the, the song of Christ must be in you. And sanctification, as we'll see in a minute, requires your active attention. You can't neglect it. You start neglecting what it is. You, it's not enough to just put off the old. You have to put on the new. Flip back to Second uh, Timothy here. I want to spend the rest of our time digging into this passage. Um, if in, this is where the outline will come in here, the handout. If change is to occur in our lives, we have to go to the source of it all, that being the work of Christ applied to our hearts through the vehicle of the Spirit and the Word. And if you want to change, the Word must dwell in you. You must walk in the Spirit. And this is a fourfold process that uh, Paul puts here in place so that we can be equipped for every good word. So first, he says teaching. Teaching. The change process begins here. There are three things to consider regarding this question. Why does teaching matter? Well, first, teaching from God's Word clarifies what God expects from us or of us. Teaching from God's Word clarifies what God expects of us. The study of Scripture causes us to learn. That's the goal. We're supposed to learn. And if you don't read your Bible, if you're not studying your Bible, you don't learn what God expects from it. At best, what does God expect of me? Well, it's fuzzy. Well, you need to have clarification. That's what teaching does. Teaching from the Word clarifies what God expects of us. No one can change without a standard, and the standard for every man and woman of God is the Bible. That is the standard. And when we look to Scripture, we find out what it is we really need. Because oftentimes we don't really know what we need because we have sometimes a lack of self-awareness. So we don't fully know so all of us need to be in the Word so that we know what we need and what God expects from us. Dear church, master the Word of God. My exhortation here, master the Word of God so that you can be mastered by the Word of God. Creed and conduct matters. Without creed, conduct runs amok. And without conduct, creed has no positive fruit. You need both. 
You need creed and conduct. You need uh, the study of Scripture and the living Spirit of God in you working that out. So know your Bible so it becomes clear what God demands from you. In the process of change, we need to know what truths we may be neglecting, uh, and it could be intentionally or unintentionally. There could be truths about the character and nature of God that we have just not thought about or we're not thinking about in this particular situation when we're struggling with X, Y, and Z. Um, what truths are we neglecting and what truths are we perhaps failing to believe? The person who does not only sees God the Father as wrathful has a wrong picture of God. Or they only see God like, God, well, God was angry in the Old Testament. He's good now. Jesus came with his flowing, beautiful hair and it's picturesque and everybody's nice. Jesus is nice. And we view God a certain way. And what do you think happens when we view God a certain way? We miss it. We miss it. So if we don't know the sovereignty of God, for example, we will be tempted to trust in ourselves. If we don't know the sovereignty of God, we will worry ourselves into sickness. And then we'll complain about our situation because we've failed to understand the inexhaustible sovereignty of God and his predestinating activities in the world. We'll just lose, we'll forget it. This bad thing happened to me and now my life is a mess. Instead of this bad thing happened to me, Christ said it's good for me for the goal of, of Christ in, in my life and in the world, I will accept it and I will bend the knee. You may be crushed, but thankfully Jesus takes our crushed hearts. And by the way, the worst outcome of that is blaming God and then calling him evil. If we don't know his supremacy and or his holiness, we won't fear him and then we won't seek to please him. So we start fearing men and we start to please men and so on. Number two, teaching from God's word keeps us grounded for obedience. Teaching from God's word keeps us grounded for obedience. When we scour the scriptures, we find that the Spirit assists us and aids in our learning so that we may know what is required for obeying the Lord, for obedience. And once we know what God expects, the Word keeps coming back to us for more so that we may be anchored and grounded for the day ahead or the week ahead. The Bible is a fountain, so drink from it daily. The Bible is a dock, so stay at port and you won't drift away. That's the idea. We need to be grounded for obedience. So we need to know what he says. And when we go to the word and find the teaching, that's what happens. Number three, teaching from God's word ensures that we are reliant upon God above all. Teaching from God's word ensures that we are reliant upon God above all. When we go to the word, we know what God expects and we know how to stay in obedience, how to, how to live and move within our justified in Christ status. And once we figure out those things from the Bible, we know with certainty that we can be successfully relying upon God above all. We won't be tempted to trust our wayward, foolish hearts um, and our foolish minds. We'll just know, I, I have to trust Christ. I can't lean on my own understanding, Proverbs 3 says. In this situation, we won't be tempted to drink from any other fountain. So go to the Word. It's reliable. Go to the Word. It's reliable. Go to the Word. The Spirit desires to implant it within you. Go to the Word. He is faithful. Change starts with the teaching and testimony of the Holy Scriptures. If you want to change in your life, it starts there. 
Paul, second, moves on to reproof or conviction. Elegmos, proof, reproof. Um, Once we learn what God expects of us, any deviation from God's standards should provoke conviction in us. And I'm talking about conviction like passionate. We're talking in legal terms here. Conviction as in repentance. Well, that's what it leads to us, leads um, us to, I should say. Reproof provokes conviction, leading us to repentance, leading us to change, leading us to maturation. Without reproof, change is impossible. Without reproof, change is impossible. It's not enough to know the Word. The Word, with the aid of the Spirit, must move you a certain way. The Word is used by the Holy Spirit to reprove your heart in order to continue the process of sanctification and spiritual growth. Um, this, th- this word reproof here has this connotation of, of um, bringing deeds and thoughts, essentially bringing our hearts out in the open for critique, uh, for evaluation based on the truth. So it's not enough to just know the word. Plenty of people just know the word. The devil knows the word. <laughs> it's not enough. Reproof has to happen in our lives. And that reproof means that all of your thinking and all you're doing all of your actions have to be brought to the light to be examined. That's what reproof does. Um, when we read the Bible, we look at a mirror, essentially. Um, we look at the mirror in the sense that we see God in it, not necessarily um, us first and foremost. But we do find the truth about who we are. We find the truth about what we've done. Um, and we also find out what the condition of our heart truly is. What is the condition of our hearts? Go to the Word. There's clemency and mercy in the Word, but not without conviction. So why do we need reproof? First, reproof is necessary in order to establish true guilt. Reproof is necessary in order to establish true guilt. A rebuke from the Word is a great comfort for the humble heart. A rebuke from the Word is a great comfort for the humble heart. For the proud heart, a rebuke from the Word is just noise. Reproof is achieved when actual conviction in the person is brought about. Reproof happens by establishing true guilt before God. We don't want to establish false guilt. We're going to come back to that. But the charge must be clearly identified with scriptural commands. Uh, The idol has to be rooted out. So how do we identify idols? Well, what is it that I need more than God to find meaning and purpose? What is it that I need more than God to feel valued and dignified? That's an idol. What is it that I I don't have without which my life is completely shipwrecked? I just have to have this. I have to have the the money and all this. What is it that drives you? That's an idol. What do I love? What do I fear? That's how you, uh, parents especially with helping our children, learn that um, we have to help them with questions like that. Well, what do I love? All right, that's great that you love and appreciate that. It's not wrong. It's a gift from God, but do you love it more than God? Because now we have a problem. What do you fear? What do you fear? I fear X, Y, Z. Well, then we have to deal with that. And if it, if it isn't Christ, reproof is necessary. Am I justifying my sin? Am I hiding my sin? Am I minimizing my sin? If so, then I need reproof like I need water. Number two, reproof is necessary in order to demonstrate what is actually a sin or not. 
Sin begins as something very attractive to us, and it is very attractive. And then we believe it to be that something not only attractive, but it's something that's inevitable. And because we think it's inevitable, rather than fight back, we just give in because it's easier. And if that's the case, we need to learn how to have reproof in our life. We, in this mindset, we develop a defeatist attitude, a defeatist mindset, instead of embracing the victory of Christ, whose spoils of war are given to us. Again, false guilt is a ditch we must avoid. Far too many Christians feel guilty about things they shouldn't, and worse yet, don't feel guilty about the things they should. That is a dangerous place to be, because you don't actually know what is a sin and what's not. So you have this whole fundamentalist movement where playing cards is a sin. <laughs> we can't play. Those are, those are the devil's cards. Well, you've failed to actually see the structure and the, the direction. What is the direction? Could you use cards in a sinful way? Yes. Are they inherently sinful? No. <laughs> so play on. <laughs> Number three. Reproof or conviction ensures that the charge is made plain for all parties. The charge is made plain for all parties. In a scenario where sin involves several different parties, reproof from the Scriptures makes sure that the charge is clear. What in the Bible, in God's law word, that's our standard, makes this particular thing a sin and a problem? Uh, there is a legal and judicial process for bringing a charge against someone. In Matthew 18, we're going to talk about that in another week ahead, but reproof is the establishment of that charge in the sinner and for the witnesses. We're actually declaring judicially, this is a sin, this actually happened. It happens for you as an individual when you go to the Word and you find reproof, you know exactly, yes, what I said, what I did, what I thought, that was a sin before the living God. And I deserve to die for my sin, but I'm going to confess it. Now, when you're in a situation where multiple people are involved, then there's a process for it, for that. But someone is reproved. How do, you, how do I know I'm reproved or have, have experienced reproof? Someone is reproved if they understand the charge and they agree with it. That's the full end of reproof. The charge is, I did this and you agree with the living God and His Word that what I did was wrong and sinful, you've had reproof in your life. Which is tricky because, again, we can feel guilty about things we shouldn't, right? Because they're not actually sins. It could be a fear of man issue. It could be a whole host of things. But we have to know what God's Word says. So reproof is essentially the work of a prosecuting attorney. However, stopping here, again, doesn't bring God-glorifying change. There's more to be done. The third thing, the Bible is profitable for correction. Correction, number one, is the necessary. It's necessary in order to set someone on the right path of obedience. There's that word again. We have to be set up on the right path of obedience. This word in the, in the original language literally means standing something up. That's sort of the root of the, of the word. Standing something up. Grace picks us up out of the ditch of sin and sets us up straight so that we may walk now on the, uh, in the Spirit on the road of redemption. Teaching helps you know that there is a road and there is a ditch, right? Conviction helps us know that we're in the ditch. 
Correction is the rope that gets us out of the ditch and back on the road. Number two, correction aids in the process of confession and repentance. Correction aids in the process of confession and repentance. Repentance means the changing of mind and thus direction. Jay Adams writes it like this. He says, repentance is a change of mind about one's beliefs, attitudes, and behavior that involves regret about sin and issues in a changed lifestyle, outward evidence of a desire to be different. Confession acknowledges the sin of the offending party. Remember when Dave sinned, David sinned with Bathsheba? He says, against you, God, and you alone I have sinned. Now, he obviously sinned against others, but who is the ultimately offended party in this? God. So when we're set up straight, when we experience correction, we can confess, we can repent, and we can seek restoration. Um, refraining from sin means saying no to fleshly desires, which obviously reinforces and aids in repentance. But sowing positively to the Spirit means saying yes to those things that reinforce and aid righteous desires, which ends in God-exalting faith. Clothing analogy. It's, again, it's not enough to just confess that the pile of laundry there that you just took off was, was bitterness or gossip or, or impatience or whatever. That's a good thing. But so to the Spirit means, now I know that's wrong. What is right? I think a lot of situations, again, going to talk about this in another week, but um, in, in handling conflict, a lot of situations could be aided if we simply were clear exactly what, what, whatever happened, how did, how did it make you feel, what was the intent, was there intent, and you kind of sort through those things. But when we think of correction, we have to think, yes, what I did was wrong, but this is the right way to handle it. It's not enough to just say this was wrong and I've sinned and I, please forgive me. That's part of it. Please forgive me because I, was, I should have been patient because the Spirit calls me to patience and I wasn't. And that hurts you. Number three, correction moves from unbiblical thinking to biblical thinking. It is here where we part ways with and put off sinful thoughts, sinful patterns, sinful attitudes. We agree with God that something is sinful, and so we break with the circumstances, perhaps even breaking with the people, or at least the scenario surrounding that, or the practice itself. We break with that, and we guard against falling into that sin, again, obviously, using measures of obedience. So sometimes drastic measures happen. Jesus said, if your, hand, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, sever your hand. He's being, of course, hyperbolic and exaggerative, but his point is, is that you must take, sin is so serious that you must take as drastic as necessary measures in order to keep yourself from it. Correction means forsaking the ditch of sin by whatever means necessary. You're walking on the road to redemption. You know you've fallen in the ditch of sin, whatever it was. You're walking, and you're going to take whatever measures necessary to make sure that you're not going there again. That could be, especially with internet usage and other things, you're going to make, take drastic measures to prevent that from happening again. Now, restoration, by the way, is also part of the, this correction process. Um, Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-11, through 11, how, how it works. So how do you restore someone? How do you restore a, a relationship that's been broken by sin? Well, first... Obviously, forgiveness must be issued. 
And when forgiveness is issued, the issue is never brought up ever, ever again. It's buried. Second, he or she must be comforted and advocated for. He says this in 2 Corinthians. You have to advocate for that person. Yep, they have repented. Yep, they're a part of us. They, they he or she, whatever the situation, they are, to, they are in a state of correction. They are, uh, you know, in this state of fellowship. Third, Paul says to reaffirm your love for him or her. So if, if sin happens and damage has been done in a relationship and you're seeking forgiveness and, and to, to move forward, then you need to reaffirm your love for that person. And that's actually part of how to build trust. Again, another topic for another week. But if someone isn't restored to fellowship, then there really hasn't been correction. There hasn't been a standing up straight for them. And that's what we want everybody to have happen to them, to stand up straight. Fourth and finally, the Bible is profitable for training in righteousness. Padilla is the word. Training in righteousness. The first thing, training in righteousness sets the stage for future obedience and holiness. Training in righteousness sets the stage for future obedience and holiness. Change can't happen without training. One mustn't simply put off the old ways. He or she must put on the new ways. If you've fallen off the bike into the ditch, we're adding a bike now to the metaphor. If you've fallen off the bike into the ditch, then you're pulled out of the ditch through reproof. You're walking now in a correct manner to train in righteousness. Maybe you need to go back to the training wheels on the bike. They're necessary for the future. We are to put away the past guilt through repentance, embrace our present stance before God, and to learn how to be holy by training and practice. Number two, training in righteousness clarifies for us what is righteous, just, and good, what is ours in Christ. Sanctification is simply you becoming what you already are in Christ. Sanctification is you becoming what you already are in Christ. The Bible trains us to discern things, to discern good and evil. Um, in fact, Paul says that's a mark of maturity in 1 first, um, Corinthians chapter 2. The Bible trains us to discern what is righteous, what is just, and good for the self, for the family, for the church, and for the world. 1 John 3, 7 says the one who does righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. You have the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account. When you do righteousness, you're practicing righteousness in Christ, you exhibit that righteousness for the world. And the Bible presents to us the justice of God. The Spirit gives us the Christ of God. So if you want to be trained in righteousness, you got to go to the Word. You have to go to the Word. You have to read what it says, and you have to figure out how to do what it says. Um, read it aloud, if you must. And do it so you can believe and practice righteousness. Third, training in righteousness helps us learn biblical alternatives to unhealthy, sinful patterns we once indulged. Training in righteousness helps us learn biblical alternatives to the unhealthy, sinful patterns we once indulged. Listen, habits take time to cultivate and develop. Decent material out there, by the way on this issue of habits and how to develop habits and, and how long does it take for something you do? You know, how many, how many days in a row do you got to read the Bible in order to just really get in like, oh yeah, this is my new habit. I'm going to read it every morning or I'm going to, I'm going to pray two times a day. And this is what I'm going to pray when I pray. And you make a plan for it and you, you know, you should make a plan. It's not just going to happen. 
because the old man's knocking on the door. He wants his clothes, right? Don't give them to him. Habits take time to cultivate and develop. Actions produce habits, which produces character. But this, of course, can be negative or positive. Obviously, bad actions produce bad habits, which produce bad character. But the opposite is true, too. Good actions produce good habits, which produce good character. You don't just get good character in this area without the good habits necessary to form you into that. And you don't get the good habits without the good actions. And we like to put the cart before the horse because that's what we do. Um, Robert Murray McShane said, For one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Jay Adams, again, he says this great stuff about habits. He said, Habits is a blessing from God that enables us to do things unconsciously, automatically, skillfully, and comfortably. That's the four characteristics so that we can do other things at the same time. Think about it. Is your prayer life, can you do it unconsciously, automatically, skillfully, and comfortably? The first thing you hear, whatever it is, news item that stresses you out, relationship strain, what is your first reaction? What do you do unconsciously and automatically? If it doesn't go to the word in prayer, then we don't have it right. And thus, we don't have the habits right. The process of change isn't over until you have been adequately trained in righteous thinking, righteous doing, and believing. So scripture and prayer, community and worship, service and suffering, all of it aids in in this process of maturation and change. Now, wrapping up, I have a few more things to say on on this topic of change. In order to give yourself a fighting chance, in this, you need certain conditions for change. You just have to have certain conditions that have to be met. There has to be an environment, another way of saying it, there has to be an environment for uh, it to be successful. Grace, justification by faith alone, adoption into the family of Christ, um, mercy, um, God's predestinating election, the gospel itself and what the good news gives you, all of that is our environment. Because when things go sideways, we're not always often quick to think about the justification we have in Christ. Our legal standing before God has been met. We don't, we don't want to forgive others, and then we have to stop and realize, wait, in Colossians, Paul did say, yeah, forgive each other like Christ forgave you. Oh, that's right, I have been forgiven of a lot. If I've been forgiven of that thing that that person did to me, why would I not forgive them? You start to train yourself in these righteous ways of thinking and doing. So that's our environment. The conditions, we need to know, have been met in Christ and, thanks to the Spirit, have been given to us in Christ. The gospel itself is evidence that the Lord deals with us in our infirmities with with love and patience and self-sacrifice. Think about the fact that Jesus, we're coming up on Christmas, not, you know, to skip over uh, Thanksgiving, which is pre-Christmas in my view, but, and you can listen to Christmas music now, it's fine. You have permission Some of you are repulsed by that, but you need to be trained in righteousness, okay? (laughs) But as we think about the Christmas times coming, the holidays are coming, and you think about the glories of the incarnation, that God himself would stoop so low, because that's where we are in our infirmities, and he came with love and patience and and self-sacrifice 
Your paradigm changes in how you interact and view other people because of that. It should. And Jesus isn't someone who is, is, who, who is good for us if we just sprinkle a little bit of him in some time or another. Jesus is goodness itself. He redeems us. He sets us up straight so we can imitate him from start to finish. Faith in Christ is what marks our lives. Friends, Christ sanctifies his people. Go look up 1 Thessalonians 5.23 later. Christ sanctifies his people. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Think of it this way. The work of Christ in the gospel, it delivers us from the penalty of sin, which is death. But it also deliver, 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 excuse me, delivers us from the power of sin. It delivers us from the power of sin, which is condemnation and slavery. And as Christ defeats his enemies, the presence of sin will be no more when the fullness of the new heavens and new earth trans, transacts in glory. The election of the Father, the redemption of the Son, the liberation of the Spirit. The election of the Father, the, the redemption of the Son, the liberation of the Spirit. That is the recipe. That is the environment that we possess in order to change. You have what you need. Peter says it elsewhere. You have what you need for life and doctrine. You, you have what you need. You possess it. So our job is to follow the Holy Spirit who leads us to the fountain of grace, who reminds us daily of our standing with Christ, who brings us to the word that we might be realigned. William Romain writes, quote, No sin can be crucified, either in heart or life, unless it first be pardoned in conscience. Because there will be want of faith to receive the strength of Jesus, by whom alone it can be crucified. If it be not mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. If you don't believe on the gospel, the true gospel, where your sins have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives within you. Galatians 2.20. If you don't know that, you'll forget about it. The guilt will wreck you. John Owen said, very aptly, holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing the gospel in our souls. Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. Justification in Christ changes your status. Sanctification changes the religious direction of your heart. The, the root of your being is the heart. It's always the heart. Your thinking and doing comes from this central place. That's the Christian worldview, Proverbs 27:19. Every sin begins in the heart. It begins with a desire for something or some arrangement that is over and against God. And conversely, every act of righteousness begins in the heart with a desire to honor Christ and his word before the self. Change is simply you becoming what you have already been made to be in Christ. Change is simply you aligning your heart's desires with what you already possess in Christ. Inveterate sanctification is the, is the aim. A long obedience, a resolute determination, a long obedience in the same direction. You can change. You can change because you have what you need. You have what you need in Christ. You are righteous in Him, so look to Him. That is the recipe for change. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and ask for You to make this a reality in our lives. God, it is true that in your word you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have given us the, the outline, the profitability of your scripture, your word. It's God breathes and 
We find the teaching, we find the reproof and conviction necessary. We find how to be corrected and how to be trained in righteousness. And Father, we know your word says the aim of that is so that we can be equipped for every good work. And Lord, you have put many a good work in front of us. And oftentimes we neglect it. So we confess that to you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would dwell in us, that the peace of Christ would rule our hearts, that the word of God would dwell in us richly. Aid us, God, in this change so that we can grow, so that we can be mature, so we can move to the meat of the word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.